the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us. We begin tonight with a tale of uh, two states and uh, two governments. In uh, one state, you have Wisconsin Republicans, that would be the state of Wisconsin, uh, suing uh, and having their case heard by the state Supreme Court there. Uh, The uh, director of public health in the state of Wisconsin, but uh, really the governor by extension, with respect to a shelter-in-place order that was extended without the legislature's consideration and participation. And in Dallas, you have a salon owner who opened her salon as the state of Texas is reopening, but uh, in contravention of county regulations regarding the opening. So in Dallas, like in Oklahoma, some other states, federalism has been extended That philosophy has been extended from the federal government to the states and then by the states to the localities. And so, uh, like in Oklahoma, if uh, certain counties and municipalities want to go at their own pace, just as private sector businesses, of course, and you don't want to reopen when you're allowed to, well, um, we'll defer to local authorities, the government closest to the people. But let's start in Wisconsin, because as we discussed on a previous show, so many states right now are being ruled by the whims of one person the occupant of the governor's mansion in that state. And that's a problem when at the state level, it's supposed to operate like the federal level where you have three co-equal branches of government, the executive, the legislative, and the judicial. And so some participation from those other branches where appropriate would be appropriate. Uh, Wisconsin legislative Republicans certainly think so. And uh, this question by Supreme Court Justice, State Supreme Court Justice Rebecca Bradley, uh, indicates that she thinks so as well, that unlike uh, Governor Phil Murphy in New Jersey, uh, Justice Bradley does not believe that the Constitution is above her pay grade at the local level. My question for you is, where in the Constitution did the people of Wisconsin confer authority on a single unelected cabinet secretary to compel almost 6 million people to stay at home and close their businesses and face imprisonment if they don't comply with no input from the legislature without the consent of the people. Isn't it the very definition of tyranny for one person to order people to be imprisoned for going to work among other ordinarily lawful activities? Where does the Constitution say that's permissible, Council? Indeed. Uh, it must be uh, the penumbras and emanations to borrow a blackmanism, right? Uh, and uh, it is noteworthy, noteworthy for a state Supreme Court justice to invoke the T word, tyranny. Is it not tyrannical? 
this is what uh, Frederick von Hayek meant when he observed that to be controlled in one's economic interests is to be controlled in everything. It's not limited to your work. Uh, it is a quilt to borrow from Mike Rowe. How about uh, shoehorning Mike Rowe and Frederick von Hayek in the fa- same sentence? That's pretty good. Mike Rowe of Dirty Jobs, Discovery Channel fame, right? He uh, observed recently, there's something tricky with the language going on here because with regard to an economy, I don't think there's any such thing as a non-essential worker. This is basically a quilt. If you start pulling on jobs and tugging on careers over here and over there, the whole thing will bunch up in a weird way. Yeah, weird. Uh, And so it is with your economic freedom. Once you start uh, uh, pulling at someone's economic freedom, the whole thing will bunch up in terms of their general freedom as a free citizen in a free country. Salient observations from the Wisconsin State Supreme Court Justice Rebecca Bradley, which brings us to this uh, case in uh, Dallas, Texas. A salon owner there, uh, 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 Miss Luther, Shelley Luther, opened her salon in Dallas in violation of uh, a county uh, edict that suggested that uh, she's non-essential. They disagree with Mike Rowe that there are aren't essential and non-essential, that uh, the economy is a quilt. And um, here's what the judge, the uh, local magistrate there, had to say to Miss Luther for violating the ordinance. This judge, Eric Moyer, this will be, these words will be remembered too, just as uh, Justice Bradley's in Wisconsin will be. You now see the error of your ways and understand that the society cannot function where one's own belief in a concept of liberty permits you to flaunt your disdain for the rulings of duly elected officials, that you owe an apology to the elected officials whom you disrespected by flagrantly ignoring, and in one case defiling their orders, which you now know obviously apply to you. That you understand that the proper way in which in an ordered society to engage concerns which you may have had is to hire a lawyer and advocate for change, an exception or an amendment to laws that you find offensive, that you publicly state that this is the way that citizens in the state should behave, and that you represent to this court that you will today cease operation of your salon and not reopen until after further orders of this of the government permit you to do so. This court will consider the payment of a fine in lieu of the incarceration, which you've demonstrated that you have so clearly earned. Is there anything that you would like to say? Uh, well, before uh, we hear from Ms. Luther, there's some things I'd like to say, Your Honor. One is, uh, you bring a fair point uh, about uh, raise about uh, if I have an issue with a law, then I, I litigate the matter. I don't just get to make my own rules. Uh, okay, that's fair enough. It would also be uh, noteworthy for a judge to uh, consider the uh, constitutionality of particular orders. Maybe that's not uh, your place in this setting with respect to this case, but certainly something that uh, you might uh, hold forth on as an officer of the court. Additionally, there's one thing to say that I violated the edict of the county. 
and that there are consequences to violating the edict under the law as it's currently constituted. And uh, to demand I accept responsibility and the consequences. It's quite another to say I should apologize to officials whose official action I disagree with. It's another thing to say that I should instruct the uh, residents of Dallas or the state of Texas generally as to how they are to respond to official actions they find violative of their individual liberty. <laughs> it, it really, uh, you're offended. Well, you're offended at me opening the, my salon in violation of the law. Well, I'm offended that you think you can dictate to me what I should believe about the law. This law in particular or the law in general as condition of some sort of leniency. That's what I would have said. Here's what uh, Shelley Luther told Judge Moyer. Judge, I would like to say that I have much respect for this court and laws. And that I've never been, been in this position before. And it's not some place that I want to be. But I have to disagree with you, sir, when, I, when you say that I'm selfish. Because feeding my kids is not selfish. I have hairstylists that are going hungry because they'd rather feed their kids. So, sir, if you think the law is more important than kids getting fed, then please go ahead with your decision. But I am not going to shut the salon. So what was Judge Moyer's decision? Persuaded? Not exactly. $7,000 fine for defying the county order for opening her salon. Week-long jail sentence. So uh, the owner of Salon a la mode in Dallas, Shelley Luther, is in prison right now for opening her salon. You know, because she's not essential. Not only uh, do you have to stay shuttered if you're not essential, as decided by the government, you have to celebrate that decision. This is going to um, bubble to the surface rather quickly. If this is the approach that's taken, even in the handful of states that are going to maintain draconian lockdowns, Texas, thankfully, isn't one of them. Uh, municipalities that are going to try to maintain draconian lockdowns, even in states that are reopening. This is going to come to a head. It's one thing to label my business not essential. It's another thing to demand under threat of, uh, of, of punishment under the law that I celebrate such a designation. Pretty dangerous place with some judges on the bench and a pretty encouraging place with other justices on the bench like Rebecca Bradley in Wisconsin. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And to give you a concrete example of the thought process of a lockdown and bus governor, uh, I take you to my home state of Illinois, where you have Governor J.B. Pritzker announcing uh, five phases, dividing the state into four kingdoms yesterday, five phases for reopening with 14 and 28 day requirements for 
the uh, metrics to be measured before you can move from phase one phase to the other phase with the earliest any of the partitioned parts of Illinois could open in a substantial way, as you're seeing in a couple of dozen other states around the country, would be the end of May. And Chicago metro area, the earliest, really, based on what he says, as you're about to hear, would be the end of June. So this gives you some kind of indication of the divide and the divide in thinking between the Pritzkers and the Whitmers and the Evers and the Northams of the world and most of the nation's other governors. Here's uh, Governor Pritzker on the metrics. IDPH will watch the identified health metrics closely to determine when regions have attained them so each can move from phase two to phases three and four. And more specifically, those metrics are, first, a region must be at or under a 20% test positivity rate and increasing by no more than 10 percentage points over a 14-day period. And a region must have either not had an overall increase or must have maintained overall stability in hospital admissions for COVID-like illness in the last 28 days. And a region must maintain the availability of a surge threshold of 14% availability of ICU beds, of medical and surgery beds, and ventilators. And just to be clear, that is to go from phase two, where we are now, which is basically shut down with some parks open in Illinois, to a phase three, which is partial retail opening that you're seeing happening. Well, it's already happened and continues to happen in, as I said, more than two dozen states. For more on um, the statistics, as well as some assessment of those metrics, because it's certainly not limited to Illinois, there is thinking like that around the country. Pleased to be joined again by Sean Trendy, Senior Elections Analyst for RealClearPolitics.com. He is a co-author of the 2014 Almanac of American Politics and author of the lost majority. Sean, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, what's your reaction to those uh, metrics and time horizons from the Illinois governor? Well, it's good that, you know, you're at least talking about opening things up there. You know, I, I think that still airs a little heavily on the side of, on the side of caution, uh, given what we're seeing in this country outside of New York. But, you know, I, I think other states are opening up more quickly and, and we'll know in a, a week or two whether or not We've made sensible decisions. Well, I mean, uh, what we have here seems to me what Professor Ioannidis at Stanford has said he just finds remarkable, which is people committed to continuing to believe their models rather than real-world information. You had a piece that I referenced yesterday. Let's dig into it a little bit. That uh, included daily COVID cases by state, so state by state from March 15th through uh, April, uh, you find, among other things, I'll just read your summation, no states are in anything resembling an exponential growth trajectory. Almost all states are past the peak, most states substantially so. This would suggest that in many states, the question really should be how to reopen while keeping hospitals from being overwhelmed again. But that is not the question being asked or much less answered in states like, as I said, Illinois, Wisconsin, Michigan, Virginia. It, it all gets a little bit mucked up because, uh, and that's with an M, uh, because <laughs> tests have been increasing. And so some of these states that you see peaking now, like Virginia, really probably aren't peaking right now. They've peaked a while back, but they're increasing the number of people tested, so they're, they're capturing more asymptomatic and mild cases. And, and, yeah, I mean, Virginia, they're talking about, you know, extending school closures into the next year. They already 
determined that they aren't going to reopen the schools, and the schools aren't out there until mid-June. So I just don't think it's it's keeping in line with the data there and, and the data nationally. Everyone is treating it as if the country were New York City. New York City is a place where I would be really concerned about how I open and, and when I reopen and whether I reopen, but it's just a completely different ballgame elsewhere in the country. Well, the other thing it seems to me is they're treating this sort of peak and these, you know, 14 days and 28 days, these sort of uh, time horizons to measure. You're treating it as like, it, like uh, the cases go up at a nice, neat 45-degree angle, and then they come down at a nice, neat 45-degree angle, rather than look like the, uh, you know, chart of a public equity or look like an EKG over time, which is how they actually look. Yeah, there's randomness involved. Some days a bunch of people are going to show up to test or someplace will process a bunch of tests. Here in Ohio, we had kind of an idiosyncratic outbreak in Marion County because there was a it moved through the prisons there. Very few people died, but there were like 2,000 cases in a, in a relatively small county. So you're not going to get a smooth every day. It's less than the day before. And even over a seven-day horizon, you might get spikes here and there. That doesn't mean uh, that things aren't getting better and that it's not safe to start talking about reopening. Again, the, the goal is to keep, should be at least to keep the hospitals from being overwhelmed. That's what we shut down to do, not to ensure that no one ever would get this disease. Um, since you brought up prisons, um, interesting write-up by Tyler Cohen, the uh, econ professor at George Mason University, Bloomberg columnist. Why aren't there more COVID-19 deaths in U.S. prisons? He looks at the data. 2.3 million prisoners in the U.S. So far, the number of reported COVID-19 deaths is 251. This at the time of writing a couple of days ago. For purposes of a contrast, Rhode Island has about a million people and currently 266 deaths. Connecticut, 2,300 COVID-19 deaths, population about 3.5 million. In, in other words, almost 10 times the number of deaths as prisons without having even twice the population. Not only is that a curious event, and there may be some explanations for that, prison population tends to be younger and so forth, but it also suggests that these prisoner releases that governors and mayors are doing around the country uh, may not be so judicious or warranted. Yeah, it's really puzzling. If you had kind of asked me vulnerable populations where this was going to just wipe out populations, I probably would have said smokers, prisoners, homeless encampments, and yet those three groups show remarkable resilience in the face of this thing. So I don't know. Yeah, it does seem to suggest that releases from prison, maybe if you have like an 80-year-old nonviolent offender, right. it makes sense to give them compassionate sure. release. Right. But generally speaking, like you said, very few people are dying in the prisons. It's a younger population. So I don't think the mass releases seem justified. It seems to me like uh, one of the recriminations coming out of this, at least from some quarters, will be targeting versus one-size-fits-all and maybe even an argument about phasing in just as we're trying to phase out rather than the uh, the approach that was taken in so many uh, so many states. Yeah, so I, I think one person who needs to get some credit for this is Governor DeSantis down in Florida. Yeah. Who kind of took that approach. Uh, there's a good piece in the Wall Street Journal today that basically was like, look, he, when Locale said we see stuff going on, that's not safe here for spring break or on the beaches or whatever. We need to shut down. Governor DeSantis said, yeah, but my absolute backing on that shutdown, we'll do what we need to do to back you up. Some of the rural counties in northern Florida had zero cases, so it didn't necessarily make sense to shut down there. So, they're abs- you know, Wyoming 
never shut down and has had very few cases. So I, I think that's exactly right. What works in New York City or what's required or reasonable in New York City is, is very different. And similarly, what, what makes sense in Chicago is going to be different than what makes sense in the suburbs, which is going to be different than what makes sense downstate. He is Sean Trendy, senior elections analyst for RealClearPolitics.com, co-author of the 2014 Almanac of American Politics and author of The Lost Majority. Sean, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Uh, on last night's program, we talked about uh, the study from MIT economists on lockdowns, suggesting that uh, targeted lockdown that protects the older and those with comorbidities is more effective, both in terms of saving lives as well as in minimizing economic damage. Uh, There is another study out from Israeli researchers that similarly looked at uh, a compartmentalized uh, model to examine the implications of what they describe as a controlled avalanche strategy over the population in Israel. That would mean uh, effectively variolation 20 to 49 year olds with no comorbidities offered the option to be voluntarily exposed to the virus under controlled supervision and then be issued immunity certificates. So it, it's just a different way to get to the same point of saying, you know, just setting aside legal and constitutional implications. Another way of getting to the same place of saying, we're going to allow the young and healthy to uh, open back up and participate in civil society while we protect the older and the, the vulnerable. They find that the same thing, sort of a targeted lockdown, reduces the overall mortality by 43 percent, reduces the maximum number of people in need of ICUs uh, uh, by 62 percent, decreases the time required for the release of 50 percent of the low risk population, the young and the healthy, by more than two months. The study suggests they conclude, these researchers, an ethically acceptable practice that enables reaching herd immunity faster than the current alternatives with low mortality and minimal economic damage. And yet in the United States, you still have states that are committed to, number one, ignoring cognitive dissonance to their approach, which is to treat everybody equally in a shutdown or lockdown situation. For more on this topic, uh, as well as some big thoughts about how to answer the really big question, which is getting to a vaccine, Pleased to be joined by Alex Tabarak, who is the Bartley J. Madden Chair in Economics at the Mercatus Center, professor of economics at George Mason University, and uh, co-runs the uh, site Marginal Revolution with Tyler Cohen, one of the best sites in the world for economic thought. Alex, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Happy to be here. Uh, before we get to some of your uh, ideas on, on vaccines and the approach, as well as, um, yeah, well, just the approach to, to the vaccine in particular, react to the research from MIT, from these Israeli researchers I mentioned, that suggests that the uh, targeted lockdown is the better model. So I think that's probably right if we can combine it with mass testing. So if you can reduce the number of people who are uh, infected in the population who are out and about and, you know, get onto hotspots uh, really quickly uh, with testing and tracing, 
then I think segregating the elderly and you know, particularly watching out in the nursing homes uh, can be effective. Uh, what is not going to work is if we just if, if the only thing we do is to segregate the elderly, that's not going to work because then you have so many people getting it that it actually becomes harder to segregate the elderly because there's more people you have to segregate them from because lots more people are getting it. So I really think that we need to combine mass testing with a, a better kind of a more targeted lockdown. And, and on the mass testing question, you know, how can we do a more effective job of that? What we're hearing now from a lot of quarters is it's not a capacity issue. It's a uh, t- uh, individuals volunteering to be tested issue. So h- how do we do a better job of, of implementing the mass testing if you're not getting people proactively submitting to the tests? Well, I think there's plenty of people who would like to be tested. Uh, I think the problem still is is not putting enough resources uh, behind testing. You know, in the latest bill, we put uh, $25 billion uh, behind a whole bunch of things, including testing. That sounds like a lot of money, except when you compare it to how much we spend, let's say, on soft drinks uh, every year, that's $65 billion. So we're still not even putting soft drink money behind the one thing or one of the few things which could, which could actually get the economy rolling again, uh, namely a lot more tests. And when you're talking about testing, you're talking about both testing for the virus as well as the antibody testing. Correct. Both the PCR test and the antibody test. I think we probably need both. All right. When we come back, I want to pick up uh, uh, on this discussion at the point w- at which uh, you have ideas and thoughts about how we should be thinking about pursuing a vaccine, including with public investment. I'm talking to Alex Tabarak, who is the Brett Bartley J. Madden Chair in Economics at the Mercatus Center, economic professor at George Mason University. More right after this. Stay with me. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're talking to Professor Alex Tabarak. He's the Bartley J. Madden Chair in Economics at the Mercatus Center, economics professor at George Mason University, and um, Professor Tabarak, along with uh, some colleagues, you penned this op-ed in the New York Times calling for the United States to go big, really, really big in pursuit of a vaccine. And you suggest that it, part of it is just the science and uh, getting that right, but and then the trials. But you also, uh, you and your colleagues also suggest that uh, there's a public investment that could be made to expedite this process. Correct. So here's the key point. Most vaccines fail. And they fail even given the, the vaccines typically take, you know, 10 years to produce. We're asking the vaccine manufacturers to start producing something, you know, in 12 months or 18 months or something like that. So the failure rate is probably going to be quite high. That means we need to invest in a lot of vaccines. We think at least 15 to 20. Also, what we really want to happen is that the moment we have an approved vaccine, 
we want the manufacturers to be up and ready to be running with that. Now, typically, a manufacturer, they're not going to start investing in getting the factory ready until we have approval. We want them to do it before the vaccine is approved. It's not profitable to do that. You know, it's not profitable for a vaccine manufacturer to get the factory ready before they even know whether the vaccine has been approved. So they're not going to want to do that. So we need to support some of that investment with uh, some government support in order to get them willing and ready to run the moment a vaccine is available. Well, and there seems to be some precedent for this in real time, which is uh, Gilead with remdesivir is setting up for the mass production of that therapeutic if the clinical trials that have proved promising continue to produce good results and ultimately go beyond the emergency use authorization to more general application. Exactly right. And Bill Gates and CEPI and Gabby, some non-government organizations with some government support, they have been encouraging the vaccine manufacturers to do this. But we just think we just need more of that. Uh, Bill Gates cannot do this all by himself, even as the world's richest man. We really need more uh, support. In addition, the vaccine manufacturers can actually start to produce some of this stuff and store it before it has gone through safety and efficacy trials. So, again, the idea is, is that once a vaccine is approved, they've already got some in storage, you know, ready to be delivered even. And, again, that is going to take some money up front because ordinarily uh, it's not profitable to do that. You're not going to want to start producing vaccine until you know that your vaccine has been approved for sale. But we want them to work faster, and that's why we need some government involvement here. Just on in, in, in that score, thinking about investment, that, that should be part of a conversation that really it's not part of right now, and that's the discussion among uh, the political parties and the leadership of the parties about uh, what uh, new disaster relief legislation may include, whether it's a payroll tax holiday or tort reform or more money for states and localities, that back and forth. I haven't heard much discussion about the, the need to set aside some funding for vaccine development that you're suggesting. Yeah, I mean, this is absolutely crazy. We've spent hundreds of billions, probably a trillion dollars or more on relief. And I'm not against that. That's fine. But it'd be much smarter to actually spend money on fighting the virus. And we've done very little of that. We've spent very little on testing and we've spent very little on promoting vaccines, encouraging and incentivizing vaccines. So we need to uh, get on the ball and start investing in science And part of that is to use the economics of incentives so that we can get these manufacturers ready to roll once a vaccine is approved. Uh, Robin Hansen, uh, who's uh, an academic but also an engineer, uh, had an interesting post that you you all profiled at MarginalRevolution.com. He's an interesting thinker. We've had him on the show before. He actually was talking about uh, variolation. Whether you agree with it or disagree with it, he was at least raising the specter of it uh, four four or five weeks ago. It's just interesting now that you have some studies uh, modeling that. Um, But one of the things he uh, talks about in terms of the reopening, and um, I think there's commentary from Tyler Cohn in in, uh, reaction to it, is this part of the failure to do things like you're suggesting is a failure of policymakers to consider political economy in their prescriptions for uh, responding to this outbreak. And And when you don't have a holistic contemplation of all of the damage being done by not only the virus, but the choices being made to combat it, you start to lose legitimacy. People start to tune out. You no longer have the consent of the governed. And now you've got just people going their own way. 
Right. I think that's a problem. And I think, look, how can we bring all of America together? And to me, America is the most innovative, ingenious economy uh, in the world. We have the top scientists. We got the biggest economy. And the American can-do attitude is to fight the virus. We all ought to be able to agree on that. Uh, it's amazing to me. Democrats and Republicans, it uh, doesn't matter. They all ought to be able to agree. Let's use science to actually fight the virus. And that means investing in testing. It means investing in labs. It means investing in vaccine research. That is how Americans respond to challenge. We don't just say, well, we're going to live through this thing or we're going to let people die. We're just going to go for herd immunity or even we're just going to protect our citizens with unemployment insurance. What Americans do is they go out and fight and they fight with science. And that's the way I think that we could unite everyone around a big Manhattan-style project, Manhattan Project-style program to really get to the moon. Okay, to really get to where we want to go, which is a vaccine and which is mass testing. As uh, the saying goes, sort of some of the biggest ideas in the world are the simplest. And that's pretty it's a pretty simple baseline. We all want a vaccine. So why don't we act in furtherance of it? And and with respect to the price tag, I think you put on the sort of investment that would be required to uh, get the manufacturing capacity underwritten for 15 to 20 potential vaccines. You, you were talking about uh, what, $100 billion? Yeah. Um, and look, the economy right now is losing 150 to 350 billion dollars a month right okay so anything that we uh spend a hundred billion dollars that will pay for itself even if we open the economy up you know a few weeks uh sooner The, the one virtue of this disaster is that it's so expensive we can afford to go against it big we can afford to fight it big you know this is like a world war ii kind of moment is that it's do or die you know it's go big or stay home we don't want to stay home any longer so let's go big he is alex tabarak bartley j madden chair in economics at the mercatus center economics professor george mason university and uh, co-host of marginal revolution a blog which i uh, routinely recommend that uh, he uh, uh, administers with tyler cohen Alex Tabarak, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Great speaking with you. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. In our mask culture, you're going to have uh, those who use their masks to make a fashion statement or political statement. You know, for example, this uh, Santee, California, over the weekend, officials responding after photos circulating on social media showing a man wearing a makeshift Ku Klux Klan hood while grocery shopping at a Vaughn supermarket in the San Diego suburb. Of course, uh, city officials express outrage. The man's attire depicted a symbol of hatred. Yes, uh, we know. Regional director of the ADL of San Diego. I'm sorry I'm laughing, but the virtue signaling that, you know, (laughs) the safe, consequence free virtue signaling. Tammy Gillies of the Anti-Defamation League of San Diego don't know which angers me more, the person wearing this or the fact that no one in management at Vons in Santee, California, did anything about it. What are they supposed to do? I mean, that what's the higher order here? Is it uh, uh, wearing a symbol of hate and discrimination or wearing a mask? 
I'm not sure with respect to the left's particular position. And look, you know, what angers me more about this, about this story is that, uh, you know, the guy wearing the hood is the governor of Virginia. I mean, I don't begrudge him a weekend away, but that's the real problem, isn't it? Yeah, wouldn't you say? Uh, speaking of uh, hatred, what about hatred in the direction of police? San Francisco, of course. Uh, San Francisco cops told they cannot wear the thin blue line flag COVID-19 masks while they're on the job. The edict came down on Friday after complaints about San Francisco police wearing the thin blue line flag on their masks uh, while they were uh, standing guard during a May Day protest in San Francisco. The thin blue line mask shall not be worn by our on-duty members, said San Francisco Police Chief Bill Scott. Yeah, because... uh, Well, of course, the thin blue line symbolism on some of our officers' masks may be perceived as divisive or disrespectful. Oh, heavens. You don't want to be perceived by May Day protesters, you know, socialists and communists. I mean, I know a little bit about May Day, as I'm sure many of you do, because it uh, commemorates the Haymarket Square bombing of a labor rally in, in Chicago in the late 19th century. But it's socialists and communists. That's the day, May Day celebration in San Francisco. But I understand. I mean, you don't want to offend socialists and communists in San Francisco, particularly when one happens to be the Speaker of the House. I want to remind individuals who listen to The Dan Prof Show that for a limited time, if you use the discount code SAVE25, you get 25% off live streaming No Safe Spaces. No Safe Spaces is the documentary that our friend Dennis Prager put together along with Adam Carolla in defense of free speech, the world, well, the nation over in particular, you know, consistent with our First Amendment. Number one political documentary of 2019. It's now available to watch at home at nosafespaces.com. If you use the discount code SAVE25, you get 25% off. And that price allows you to watch as many times as you want until the end of this month, until May 31. So check out No Safe Spaces at nosafespaces.com. From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Prof and at Dan Prof Show. Writing at uh, thefederalist.com, how coronavirus shutdowns are killing America's healthcare system, a topic we've discussed. Dr. Hal Schurz talks about secondary effects. Patients with less serious problems have stopped coming in to see us, thereby putting themselves in grave danger of future harm. They've been frightened to the point of believing the risk of COVID-19 exceeds the danger of not treating new or chronic medical problems. The most serious problem for looming for doctors and the medical system will come from predatory lawyers quietly collecting possible clients who've been, quote unquote, injured by doctors during these pandemics. Uh, during the, the uh, pandemic, um, we've talked about uh, the need for tort reform flying off of what Mitch McConnell has drawn as a red line for any consideration of any other federal support for states or uh, anybody else outside of the PPP program that uh, indemnifying businesses reopening 
with respect to uh, pandemic-related litigation is important, and that's something that uh, Dr. Schurz emphasizes as well. For more on these topics, we're pleased to be joined by Dr. Hal Schurz, board secretary and co-founder of Docs for Patient Care Foundation. He's the president managing partner at Georgia Urology. Dr. Schurz, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Um, just to talk a little bit about uh, the uh, litigation concern from a medical practitioner's perspective. We've heard it from a business perspective, but I think it would be useful p- for people to hear from a doctor. The fact that doctors go to work every day and unfortunately, increasingly are viewing their patients as possible plaintiffs has been a problem with our system for the last several decades. There's been no practice relief for physicians. States that have attempted to do it are discouraged from proceeding because of powerful plaintiff uh, attorney lobby. And so really, there's been no movement in, in terms of malpractice relief for physicians. And this situation has the potential of unleashing a new wave of malpractice cases against physicians that are trying to do their very best to take care of patients in a very difficult environment. Uh, in addition to that, um, you um, suggest the federal government should help out doctors to reopen offices uh, above and beyond the payroll protection program, it would seem, from my reading of your piece, explain that position. Well, Dan, right now, what people fail to realize is that the um, medical private practices are disappearing around the country. 65% of practices are run by hospitals. If you go to any major city, Chicago is a great example. You you have the consolidation of hospitals, and you also have the largest building projects in every major city are run by hospitals. And hospitals truly do not have the best interests of patients at heart. And if you just watch the news and you watch what's happening in the COVID emergency where hospitals are throwing young physicians out there to take care of these poor patients unprepared, they're basically fodder. And the the hospital administrators, they're not on the line. They're still making their salaries, but the physicians are, number one, they are, they're putting themselves at health risk, and many of them are in financial risk, especially the ones in private practice. As private practice <clears throat> disappears, more and more power is concentrated in the hands of fewer and fewer, namely the hospitals. And so there really cannot be a continued consolidation and disappearance of private practice medicine. So private practices need to be supported because that's really the backbone of the uh, physicians that are looking out for the true interests of the patients. The, when you work for a hospital, your your first allegiance is not to your patient, it's to your boss, which is the hospital. Uh, Dr. Schurz, how has uh, the outbreak and the lockdown affected you and your more than 400 employees? Thank you for asking that question. It's been a huge challenge. Our practice first had to transition to telehealth. Everybody's talking about telehealth, but it's not as easy as flipping a switch, and it's very challenging. So we had to change all of our processes so that we can incorporate that into our practice. And even with that, it is not for everybody. So it's tough to do a colonoscopy telehealth, isn't it? <laughs> I suspect. No, uh, no, you can't. You can't do any of that. <laughs> it's exactly. 
you know, there's going to be there's going to be a time where you will be able to do increasingly complex things through telehealth. There's already apps on your phone that you can put on there and put in your ear, and so and a and a and an ENT doctor can look in your ear at in your house through your iPhone. So there's increasing uh, capability. But the problem is, as you said, that most people have problems that need to have hands-on experiences with a physician and you can't do it. So telehealth has become a real challenge. And so the volumes that we're seeing have plummeted. So that's that's number one, where we're trying to keep the lights on and PPP helps, but it's only a limited amount of help for a limited amount of time. And we still have to you know, keep people employed. And we made a conscious decision in our practice that we would not fire a single person because those are the most vulnerable people. We can absorb it as physicians, I think, better, this, this downturn better than our, our hourly employees. So we made a, a, a commitment to these people to keep them on board. And so we, we went without salaries and, and uh, we, we uh, kept the lights on. But the, now as we come out of COVID, we're finding that there's a backlash and, and patients are so afraid, they're so frightened to come out of their houses because of the media, media-driven um, uh, psychosis, COVID psychosis, that that um, even though we're willing to see them, and we've taken every precaution that the CDC has um, has encouraged people to take, and we've gone even above and beyond that, people are still afraid to come to the office to uh, to get care. Is uh, flatten the curve? going to be one of those phrases that's inscribed on a memorial to the United States healthcare system. <laughs> and I ask that, and I, I mean, that's a little dramatic, but I ask that because not only uh, what you're talking about in terms of the secondary effects of not treating patients with other conditions because everything was repurposed to COVID-19, but also the whole idea, this flatten the curve was to protect the healthcare system and we're seeing and hearing more and more evidence to suggest it's decimating the healthcare system. Uh, the uh, economics of private practice, as you're describing, in combination with the public health consequences of being entirely COVID-19 focused to the perhaps reckless exclusion of the treatment of other patients with other maladies. So, Dan, that's exactly right. Um, the the uh, policies that were instituted we're not based on any facts. Nobody has any facts. This is all flying by the seat of our pants. And so the the policies that were that were created were based on flawed models that initially came out of Washington state and and uh the 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 number of cases, the death toll has not even come close to what was projected. Now, the 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 people who are um are trying to push the narrative of staying home because we have to wait until this this pandemic goes away would claim that the numbers haven't reached those 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 horrible um, um, uh, miscalculations because because we stayed at home and and that we don't know that that's 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 simply nonsense. So the 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 fact of the matter is that the um, the flattening of the curve was intended to not overwhelm the systems, right? So that, that we would have capacity to take care of people when they got sick. Well, we've, we've done that. We've, we've stayed at home. We've done, we've, we've, um, uh, we've 
acceded to to the the demands of of uh, the governors in different states, and we've um, and we've seen a flattening of the curve. So now it's time to get out from from uh, the the draconian uh, measures that that have been Im- imposed on everybody, and and, and get back to to uh to some semblance of of normalcy so but but that's not what we're hearing we're hearing that well yeah we flattened the curve we, nobody's talking about flattening the curve anymore now they're talking about waiting till the end of all of this which may never come so so i think that we we've got to you know look at this differently this is a new disease that's in our environment we need to take um steps to try to protect ourselves, to be smart. Um, and if uh, the curve is already flattened and the people who are saying that there's gonna be another spike if we don't stay at home are just, they're, they're ginning up fear. He is Dr. Hal, so, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, doctor, go we gotta, let, we gotta no, let you go. He's Dr. Hal Schurz, board secretary and co-founder of Docs for Patient Care Foundation. He's president and managing partner at Georgia Urology. Dr. Schurz, thanks for joining us, appreciate it. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. What's an investor to do in these precarious times uh, as the Fed props up the market? But uh, there are a lot of analysts warning that uh, finding a new low is still a real potential, depending on how the reopening goes. And then how the virus spreads or doesn't uh, while states are reopening if we have a, a rebound on the viral side and what the rebound looks like on the economic side. Warren Buffett over the weekend at uh, annual Berkshire Hathaway shareholders meeting had this to say about what he sees over the next year. The operating earnings for the first quarter have no meaning whatsoever in terms of forecasting what's going to happen the next year. And I don't know the consequences of shutting down the American economy. I know eventually it will work, whatever we do. Mistakes, we will make mistakes. And I'm not, during this talk, and later on, I'm not going to be second-guessing people on this because nobody knows for sure what any uh, alternative action would produce or anything of the sort. But what we do know is that for some period, certainly during the balance of the year, but it could go on a considerable period of time. Who knows? But our operating earnings will be less, considerably less, than if the virus hadn't come along. For more on uh, this investing environment and how investing may change, let's get some perspective on how it's already changed. For that, we're pleased to be joined by Seth Levin, uh, Seth Levine, excuse me, professional investor and the creator of the Integrating Investor blog and podcast. Seth uses the Integrating Investor as a vehicle to explore more fundamental and macro-related investment ideas outside of his professional responsibilities. Thus, his opinions are strictly his own and do not reflect those of his employer. Nothing he says should be construed as investment advice or recommendations to purchase or sell any investment product or service. Seth is also very uh, circumspect about indemnifying himself, which he should be in this environment. Seth, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. Why don't we start in thinking about the investing environment right now with the perspective that you provided in this post over at integratinginvestor.com. 
about uh, where we've come in investing from active management to passive investment and uh, what the world looks like in a market driven by driven by the proceeds from defined contribution retirement plans. Sure. So um, the article you're referencing was my most recent article on my website. And, and you know, really what I do is I'm, I'm taking two ideas and combining them from probably two of, uh, you know, definitely my, my, my top 10 investment market thinkers out there from Michael Mobusen and from, and from Mike Green. And there are really two concepts that I present here. First is the easy game concept. And this is from Michael Mobusen where, um, where he, uh, he basically likens um, investing to poker. And it's so just like any other business that you're involved in. You really want to find the easy place to play, right? And then I combine that with uh, Mike Green's sort of structural analysis of the passive investment industry in that post. And really what Mike, um, Mike Green identifies is that there's been a large secular tailwind to the passive investment industry over the past few decades, um, you know, we see that in the flows, certainly in equities, but it's growing cl- across other asset classes as well. And because of some demographic shifts, we could see that changing over the coming years. Just for sure. some uh, definitional foundation, uh, define what you mean by the phrase passive investing, and then yeah, then continue with what the demographic shifts may drive, uh, perhaps. Sure, absolutely. So um, passive investing was perhaps made most popular by Bill Sharp back in the early uh, early 90s, but it's certainly been around before then. Vanguard has been at the forefront of this as well. But these are just algorithmic tradings. The most the easiest way to think of it is buying the S and you know the spies, the S and P right. 500 ETF that just invests according to whatever the S and P weighting is. So there's really it's a very super simple ag- algorithm to invest not really discretionary in nature. And uh, generally speaking, uh, has outperformed the active managers, the stock pickers. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's a boatload of, um, of research over the past couple of years, you know, highlighting how active managers, so that's the more discretionary kind of mutual fund uh, managers out there, have failed to uh, have underperformed in an aggregate, an aggregate base, the bench, you know, their best, their benchmarks like the S&P 500. Which, which are what passive investments um, are meant to um, simulate. And so this uh, may be changing based on uh, dem- based on baby boomers. Um, uh, why is that, and, and what might the change look like? Sure. So, um, um, you know, one thing I should mention, it's not just necessarily demographic. So, so there's kind of two... There's two kind of parts of this of this um, thematic wave. Um, there's the secular kind of um, there's a secular wave and a secular wave. Um, so on on the secular wave, first um, I should mention I'm literally taking Mike Green's analysis. He's super smart. You you, you could look him up. Uh, he's at Logica Capital Advisors. Um, he's no one I know has done more work on this topic than Mike. Um, so so what Mike's analysis analogy suggests is that passive has benefited from a from a regulatory and legislative tailwind that has fed it into retirement accounts. So the baby boomers were the, really the first generation to have these defined contribution plans, right? These are 401ks and IRAs that we're all familiar with today. Previous generations had um, pension plans, right? Defined benefit plans. So because of the, the legislative and regulatory landscape, these plans have really become um, large holders of passive investment vehicles, um, and you know, there's really no, you know, really not need, need to go into it. But anyone can kind of observe their own 401k plan options, and you'll notice that it's dominated by passive investment vehicles. So Mike's 
analysis suggests that the aging baby boomers, you know, as they retire and and perhaps take money out of markets, that that could that could flip the tailwind um, or change, I should say, change change the that secular trend um, that passive investment has benefited from. Now, one thing to note, though, um, which kind of complicates this, is that the baby boomer generation is actually more heavily weighted to active managers than passive managers vis-a-vis sort of the younger generation. So it's not necessarily a straightforward, not necessarily straightforward analysis where retiring baby boomers equal passive outflows equal, um, you know, market declines, but it definitely is, you know, one of the complex inputs into, into the, um, into the equation. And so, and so, so if that, if that trend, if the, the passive investment trend were to, to flip, uh, uh, more globally than just, than just the baby boomers, what does that mean to investing going forward? Yeah. And that's, and that's a great, great question here. Here, I think, is where the coronavirus can um, enter the equation. You know, we're seeing um, pretty big um, spikes in unemployment over the past over the past few weeks. Um, now, initially, none of those have really hit uh, white collar workers with um, with retirement accounts, but certainly that um, the possibility of that is increasing as um, as the economic malaise seems to um, seems to carry on. Now, you would think that that you know, as people stop saving for retirements, because because there's so much retirement money wrapped up in passive investment, that that could put a pressure on some of the investment tailwinds that the passive investment vehicles have seen, primarily from retirement accounts. Interesting. So uh, he is uh, Seth Levine. He is a professional investor and creator of the integrating the integrating investor blog and podcast. The integrating investor blog and podcast, which you can find at Integrating Investor. Dot com. Seth, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your insights. My pleasure. Take care. Take care. I'm working for a living. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Before he left for Phoenix yesterday, President Trump addressed the assembled D.C. press corps, explained why uh, no Dr. Fauci for the House Democrat inquisitors, but uh, Dr. Fauci will be made available to testify before a relevant Senate committee. Basically said, look, the Democrats are trying to play politics with this, holding hearings uh, to uh, make an assessment of the pandemic response, the federal federal response to the pandemic. And uh, they're just doing this to try to win an election. They're rooting against the country with their shutdowns and they're trying to jackpot members of the task force, for example. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Mike Braun. He's a Republican U.S. senator from our neighboring Indiana. Senator Braun, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, good to be back on. Is that about right? Was that uh, the consensus among Senate Republicans as well, that 
you know, nobody's trying to uh, shut Tony Fauci up, as he's had to say several times to the press after reports to the effect. But it, we're not going to make a spectacle of it either. If you want to have a serious discussion with a serious person, then you have to do it on the Senate side. Uh, no doubt about it. I mean, we saw as we navigated through the impeachment saga, ironically, it wasn't long after we got that in our rearview mirror. Uh, course, the coronavirus cropped up. And I think it's part and parcel of what has been the goal of Democrats from the time Donald Trump arrived on the scene. He's different. They thought that there'd be some way to have him either self-destruct or get him along the way. And ironically, the coronavirus is so peculiar in terms of its characteristics and how we've had to navigate through it. Uh, But there's no shame on their part in terms of what they will do to even cheer against uh, the well-being of the country in general in their effort to uh, try to make good on what they've uh, been trying to do since November of uh, 2016. Sad in my mind, but we knew it because they've never hidden it. It's been their main agenda item uh, since then. Senator Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has drawn a red line on the issue of tort reform. If you do not provide indemnification for businesses that are reopening to expedite their reopening and to prevent a uh, slowdown in the recovery through trial lawyer class action suits and and other uh, litigation, then uh, we're not interested in talking about anything else for anybody else, is basically what he said. And uh, Nancy Pelosi said she's not interested in talking about uh, tort protection. So are we going to see action at the federal level on any of these fronts, whether it's indemnification or a payroll tax holiday or more support for state and local governments? Is any of that do you see realistic given the impasse on the tort protection issue? Well, normally that is where you start the process. In the little over a year that I've been here, then it generally grows and mushrooms into both sides getting everything they want. That's why we've got a structural trillion dollar deficit. Of course, we've now added nearly three trillion more in the whole process of trying to you know, fight uh, the disease. Much of that is being one of the more fiscally conservative individuals in the Senate. I don't know how we could have gotten around it, but this is the tough spot going forward. Uh, do we as Republicans roll over, give the Democrats everything they want? Because that's been the pattern since I've been there not like a little bit. It generally gets to where if we want what we're interested in, we almost have to go full-blown to give them everything they want. By the time we're done with that, that'll be a treasure trove. And you've already heard Pelosi talking about another trillion dollars as a starter for a phase four. Right. And there's, and there's, and there's a bipartisan group in the House, Republicans and, and Democrats, sort of this no labels caucus, which is whatever. But the bottom line is they've come up with a plan that's about half a trillion dollars, you know, as sort of like the bipartisan compromise plan, sort of the same dynamic as you're suggesting. But I mean, what are the pro- I mean, give us a sense of is Mitch McConnell going to hold fast on not bailing out states that have been bad managers of their resources, not bailing them out of those well, bad decisions? He will to the point where it depends on how much value. And I think it is significant in terms of protecting business from frivolous lawsuits specifically related to the coronavirus, Uh, not talking about issues of gross negligence. And frivolous lawsuits have become ingrained into, you know, our current way of doing business. So what's going to be difficult is we won't get 60 votes in the Senate for it unless we pay a high price 
through additional spending. And I can tell you this is going to be bringing out more than just the handful of us that normally stand up against these kinds of unholy alliances. So it'll be a clear issue. Uh, how much do you want to pay for liability protection through giving uh, the Democrats uh, their treasure trove of everything they want, similar to what happened when we passed phase three package. When we come back with Indiana Senator Mike Braun, Senator Braun, I want to get your take on a payroll tax holiday as a must have for any deal with congressional Democrats, as well as uh, the prospect of the Fed engaging in backdoor bailouts of financially reckless states and localities. We'll tackle all that with Senator Mike Braun coming up next. This is the Dan Proft Show. We're back with Indiana Senator Mike Braun. And Senator Braun, I want to go back to any prospects for a deal between Senate Republicans and House Democrats. Would a payroll tax holiday be a must for any deal with Nancy Pelosi and crew? Uh, a payroll tax holiday, I think, uh, if all of us would be for that, that one smaller government, uh, but in the context of just having spent $3 trillion, that even starts, that makes many Republicans squirm, even when you'd like to do it. It's the way the place works. Uh, payroll tax holiday is especially great if you were managing your finances better as a way to, you know, put more, uh, give more back to the people. Uh, That is a difficult discussion now in the context of what we've already done, and it's the way the place works. Uh, Something that we'd like, uh, but we'd have to pay for it with a list of tons of stuff we don't like. I'm of the position that uh, I'd love to see what we've done, see how it's working. I've been talking about a quick smart restart of the economy. We cannot replace the real economy with a cascade of stuff we do through the federal government when we're borrowing every penny to do it. Amen to that. Um, I wanted, since you since you really are, I mean, the, the, one of the reasons I enjoy talking to you so much, and I think Indiana was um, so excited to have you as their senator, clearly, is just common sense realism from uh, a, a business perspective. But but it's a, you didn't even need to be in business. You can come from any perspective. Just you have common sense realism. It's not ideological. It's here's some principles, and we got to act in furtherance of our principles. So here's one that perhaps you may be best situated to bring up. Uh, we talk a lot about the two and a half, three trillion dollars on the monet- on the fiscal side of disaster relief. We're not talking enough, in my view, about the six trillion dollars on the monetary side that the Fed has an unbelievable, unprecedented power over, uh, arguably unconstitutional power. And one of those Mm -hmm. is to backdoor bail out states like Illinois that you can't get through the front door through the legislative branch. Charlie Gasparino over at Fox Business pointed out yesterday, Illinois now talking to the municipal bond market, weighing postponing a $1.2 billion short-term bond deal that was scheduled for today. The state also scheduled to sell a billion dollars in tax exempt and taxable bonds. This is going to be through the municipal liquidity facility that isn't yet operational, but could be stood up pretty quickly. And um, the problem with this facility, which is uh, backed by thirty five billion dollars from the Treasury, is it doesn't have the credit worthiness criterion 
that other uh, Fed facilities have. And this is a way to continue. This is this is bad monetary policy, in my view. It's a way to do through the back door, which you can't do through the front door and continue to continue to incentivize bad actors at the municipal and state level around the country. And I think the Fed needs more scrutiny here. You know, that's a great point. And uh, I uh, started a couple of days ago reading Tom Coburn's book, Smashing the D.C. Monopoly. Mm. And I recommend that to any of your listeners uh, it is so instructive about what is occurring now, uh, not only through the federal government, uh, the Fed accommodating all this. It's part of how we've evolved into where there's no discipline built into the system. You can have bad behavior uh, like the Illinois state government has had to build into all the issues that you folks are contending with, at least in a state like Indiana. We still embrace ideas like balanced budgets, um, rainy day funds, um, you know, all the things that give you that ability to get through scrapes like we're going through now. Um, So in the little over a year I've been here, uh, the thing that gives me the freedom to kind of say the things I do is uh, I term limited myself uh, to doing it no more than two terms. Tom Coburn talks about that. That would be the single thing that would get people that really have discipline, don't want to build a career here, can make all the tough decisions that we've talked about here briefly to where you'd have the backbone to actually stick with it. But uh, I think that uh, all of what we're seeing here is uh, prescriptive of what is going to occur down the road, which is we're going to be taking a hard turn into the ditch and we will have to solve all this stuff uh, through some type of crisis that forces us to, because one thing I have not seen here is political will to make the hard decisions that we all do individually. Uh, Good state governments do it, uh, uh, county and local governments, and especially entities and households that don't have the luxury of being able to kick everything down the road uh, borrow the money uh, to pay for your largesse and uh, worry about it uh, tomorrow. Yeah, well, perhaps uh, Illinois could be an example to the nation because uh, there are projections out n- now that uh, re- true retirement costs will eat up 60% of the state budget, uh, sans some uh, uh, deus ex machina from D.C., which I hope th- <laughs> I hope does not come. He is Senator Mike Braun, Republican U.S. Senator from Indiana. Senator Braun, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Okay, thank you. It's the number one political documentary of 2019. It's No Safe Spaces, produced by our colleague and friend Dennis Prager, as well as Adam Carolla, putting together a story of the assault on free speech that's happening in American society on college campuses, through social media platforms, of course, in Hollywood. No Safe Spaces uh, details this. It also provides instruction as to what you can do to stand for free minds and free speech in a free society, that free society called America. For a limited time, if you use the discount code SAVE25, you get 25% off live streaming, no safe spaces. And that price allows you to watch as many times as you want until the end of this month, until May 31. So check out no safe spaces at nosafespaces.com.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and um, it's Teacher Appreciation Week. Well, how do you appreciate this? School district in Alaska, and uh, again, the fact that's in Alaska is irrelevant. What's irrelevant is that this is happening in an American school district, and there's more of it to come, guarantee it. A uh, book ban. Yeah, a book ban. In a 5-2 vote, a school board in Alaska banned from the classroom F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby as well as Catch-22, Joe Heller, as well as I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, Maya Angelou. Some uh, leftists getting caught up in the uh, censorious culture. The Manasuka Sestina School Board voting 5-2 to two to ban these books. The books contain content that could potentially harm students, said Jim Hart, school board's vice president. If I were to read these in a corporate environment, in an office environment, I would be dragged into an EO proceeding. Equal opportunity complaint proceeding. The question is why this is acceptable in one environment and not the other. Well, that's a fair question, uh, Jim, but uh, you're going in the wrong direction. Number one, this is a public school setting, so it's not a corporate environment. It's not a private sector environment. That's number one. So there are constitutional issues that attach. I mean, there are in a corporate environment or private sector environment, too, but they're a bit different. But secondly, in terms of more uh, social mores in the direction of free thought and free speech. The direction is to say the corporate environment has become totalitarian and mindless. And that's the last thing we want to do to the school district. Not we should take the totalitarian corporate culture and impose it in a public school district. I mean, is that a complicated thought? The school board did concede that Gatsby is widely considered one of the great American novels. Thank you for that. But uh, it challenged the book for some of its language and sexual references. That is ridiculous. Ridiculous to suggest the Great Gatsby is in has at least been appealed to prurient interest to borrow a Potter Stewartism. The other books oh, include Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, which is an exploration of race and, and oppression and identity. Um, as uh, the author of this piece, Frank Milley at uh, Real Clear Politics points out, yeah, of course, read that book. I've read all these books that are banned and I read them in school. Now, admittedly, that was private school, but these would have been OK in public school when I was in school. It says uh, so much about the culture and the K through 12 culture and public school settings. It's just remarkable. And of course, this is not getting the attention that it deserves. As I said, my Angelou's I know when the cage bird sings autobiographical account of her overcoming poverty, abuse, racism. I'm no fan of Maya Angelou's scholarship or the star status she achieved as, you know, poet laureate under the Clinton administration. But the idea that her book be banned because it includes sexually explicit material, sex abuse, the author suffered, and because it has anti-white messaging. What? As much as we're talking about uh, the infringements on liberty and constitutional rights as a result of the COVID-19 outbreak, 
we should be talking about them more generally because this has been going on for some time. Too sexually explicit for schools. Now, all this trans business and sexual, quote unquote, education that goes on at the pre-K and grammar school level, you know, gender is a social construct, all of this nonsense. That's fine. Uh, Maya Angelou's autobiography is not. Upside down. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Prof Show. Before he uh, jetted off to Phoenix, President Trump had this to say about uh, Democrats, and I would include the D.C. press corps when he references Democrats, their honorary members. And frankly, the Democrats should be ashamed. Because they don't want us to succeed. They want us to fail so so they can win an election, which they're not going to win. But they want us, think of it, they do everything they can to make things as bad as possible. And right now the stock market's way up. Yeah, they want uh, Trump to fail, so they want things to be made bad as possible economically um, and purposely don't connect the dots between economic health and public health. Holman Jenkins on the media had a good piece in the journal. Uh, It's not that objective inquiry into the facts and logic of events is difficult. It just has become irrelevant to journalists thriving in today's professional milieu. Reporters are actually praised for advancing the narrative, finding facts, quote unquote, to support a desired storyline. If this is what our industry is really coming to, we deserve everything the Internet and cord cutting have done to us. By the way, an intelligent public whatever portion of the public that description might represent, does not suffer under the exchange. If anything, they are oversupplied with interesting original thought and knowledge, often supplied at the provider's own expense by dozens of high-quality volunteers and blogs and social media easily found amid the dreck. We only succeed in increasing their relevancy as we decrease our own. Yeah, I think that's right. The problem is, as Holman Jenkins sort of concedes, is that uh, are you getting to critical mass in terms of the public fast enough when it comes to doing things like destroying your economy? And the answer clearly is no. I mean, if many people read Marginal Revolution's blog as read USA Today, would America be a much better place, a much smarter place? Yes. If uh, as many people read Hollywood and Toto as read the New York Times, would America be a much better place, a much smarter place? Yeah. But that's not the case, at least not yet. And uh, TikTok, uh, it reminds me of uh, uh, Adlai Stevenson, the famous the story about Adlai Stevenson I love so much, running against Eisenhower for president, gets off the stage after delivering a speech, asks his aide, how do you think I did? And um, the aide said, uh, you did you did well, but you're a little kind of over people's heads. You need to sort of bring it down to the common man level. Adlai Stevens said, said, yeah, well, this campaign is for the informed voter. And his aide said back to him, yeah, well, that's not going to be enough. That's what I think about uh, certain, at least certain states, certain metropolitan areas like the one in which I reside, Chicago. For more on this, 
pleased to be joined by the editor of the blog I just mentioned, who I, whose work I've been reading for a long time, so it's a pleasure to speak with him for the first time. Christian Toto, editor of HollywoodInToto.com, has written on the topic of the media as well. Christian, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. Thanks for the kind words, too. Yeah, yeah. No, I enjoy enjoy this, the stuff that you post, including this most recent piece uh, at uh, John Solomon's site, JustTheNews.com, about legacy media and social giants, uh, social media giants converging. Um, and, and that sort of dovetails, I think, to some extent in what, what Holman Jenkins' observation about what the old media, the legacy media has become, but develop what Jenkins said or, or uh, disagree with it and then you know, fold that into your view of how this uh, media consolidation is occurring. Yeah, I don't disagree with those statements. Here's the problem. When we had new media, when we had platforms like YouTube and Twitter, we were told this would be an unfettered, more raw presentation and that we were Americans and we could trust the news coming our way. We could discern what's good, what's bad, what's nonsense, what should be considered, what should be thrown away. It was up to us. We could decide. And uh, now we can't. And if there are opinions that the, the platforms don't like, they get canceled. They get taken off. It's, it's really amazing. We're seeing in real time. And uh, at a moment in our culture where we just don't know all the facts, obviously don't have the pandemic, we need more information. We need doctors to say, hey, I've got this idea based on this research. We need to discuss it. And yet that very situation got taken down from YouTube, which uh, you may have talked about in the past. How about Prager University? I mean, we <laughs> talked about that at nauseum. I mean, you know, the dissertations on um, the uh, state of Israel are taken down because apparently, I don't know, the YouTube minders just disagree with the state of Israel existing. And so videos about it shouldn't exist. I mean, it's remarkable stuff, as you're describing. Yeah, you know, in a fair world, the Prager U situation would be all over the news. It's absurd it's cartoonish, and it's the clearest example we've seen in recent months where, what are they thinking? This is a squeaky clean channel. How could they make that restricted, those videos? But it's more than that. Obviously, Twitter does it as well. You know, I cover Hollywood, so I see stars say the worst things, the meanest things, the cruelest things, and they never get punished or banished or taken down. And yet other stars like James Woods, the conservative actor, you know, he's he has the wrong thought and he's gone for a while. So it's all over and it's just getting worse given the pandemic. And I understand we're all scared. We're all kind of scrambling to find our footing here. But I don't think taking more thoughts down is the answer. You know, for the if there's a crazy rant about, you know, if you take vitamin D caplets, you'll be fine and you can walk into a, a germ storm. I understand there's sort of crazier thoughts here and maybe those obvious things, you know, are open to getting canceled. But when it comes to more subjective things, more nuanced thought, why are we taking that down? And they, they've they uh, uh, disposed the culture to be competition, to be a victim. And uh, they help advance that cultural disposition by playing that game themselves. And this is sort of gives them license to throw all the standards out. We've seen that in so many instances, but most recently, Andy Lack, the former now deposed head of NBC News, uh, his treacly op-ed uh, at NBC News about the press corps and the heroic things they're doing in the face of, uh, you know, the, the face of President Trump in, in an attack by the administration. A Pulitzer Prize winning New York Times reporter, David K. Johnston, saying in a recent interview, we've got to get this man, Trump, out of office or it's the end of our democracy and down the road, Joe, lie firing squads. 
firing squads, he was asked by Joe Madison, the host. Well, that's what dictators do. I mean, I have no, you know, I said after Donald Trump won the Electoral College that if you could find a way to have me arrested because he hates, uh, he said he hates me more than any other journalist in the world, that he would do so. Trump has no empathy for anyone else. And every case I've ever studied that a country has been taken over by a dictator, of course, there are firing squads, and I would expect to get shot in the first round. You see David K. Johnson, the Pulitzer Prize winner, is uh, facing a firing squad if Trump gets reelected. And so anything that he says or does or that his colleagues say or do is fair game. Yeah, what's interesting about the journalism angle is that it's often journalists who are making or coaxing these big tech platforms to silence dissent, to silence opinions. There was a reporter for The New York Times who saw a video uh, that had a, a viewpoint he didn't like, and he rushed out to them and said, you've got to take this down, and they did. It was, it was, was it a direct cause and effect? No, but what well, we don't know, it could, it could have been direct. But the problem is that these journalists, are, are, they, they want less information, not more, and that's kind of staggering. It's, you know, they should be on the opposite side of things. But we've seen in recent weeks where the Atlantic said, well, you know, China may have the right idea about the flow of information. Yeah. I mean, just imagine that thought from a journalistic out, outfit, whether it's left or right or in the center. It's, I just can't believe we're here at that moment. Well, it's it's and it speaks that you know things things that could never happen in America. Uh, it's oh, you know, people compare to what's happening in the Soviet Union, what's happening now in communist China, what's happening in dictatorships. Things could never like that could never happen in America, and they're being driven by people who are otherwise posturing themselves as anti-dictatorial, as anti-authoritarian. But they're doing a great job, I guess, of gaslighting the American people because they seem to be getting away with it in most parts of the country. What I'm amazed is that there aren't any major journalists, really big names, who want to maybe just put their foot down and say, enough, I look at my industry and we're killing ourselves, we're, we're hurting our own cause, we're damaging our reputation. We've got to stop. There's got to be sort of a network-like scream where they say, I, can't, I don't want to take it anymore. I just, it's not happening. I'm not seeing it. And I guess they're scared to death and understand because they'd be branded a pariah if they, if they went down that road. But someone's got to stand up and say, listen, I don't even like Trump. I don't, I'm not going to vote for him, but I can't stand what's happening to my fellow uh, journalists. What, what are we doing? And, and there's no one out there saying that. Well, we'll keep looking for our Howard Beale, Christian Toto, editor of Hollywood in Toto. Doc. Oh, I got to ask you real quick. Sorry. Uh, did you see Bad Education, uh, Hugh Jackman and Allison Janney yet? You know, I haven't. I've been watching a lot of independent films, but I haven't caught up with that. Have you seen it? I, I have seen it. You you have to see it because I want to hear your review of it and uh, see if it matches up to mine, which, you know, it would be okay. wise if it did, of course. This is Teacher Appreciation Week, so it's the perfect time to see it. But uh, anyway, I will look forward to your <laughs> review. Christian Toto, editor of HollywoodandToto.com. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Did CBS News fake a drive through testing facility in Grand Rapids, Michigan? James O'Keefe, friend of the show, Project Veritas, is on the case yet again, on the media's case yet again, and thankfully he is. How many uh, undercover videos have been revelatory from uh, Project Veritas? 
Now he has an insider video released today documents how the Cherry Health Clinic in Grand Rapids, Michigan, staged a fake coronavirus drive through testing lane that aired May 1st on CBS This Morning. Hidden camera recordings with the clinic staff describing how they participated in setting up the fake testing line. A clinic insider who, through disguised voice and visage, discussed this with uh, O'Keefe. This is, you know, uh, Jane Pauley, Dateline worthy, it would seem. First, the clinic insider. You're telling me you're 100% certain that CBS News, CBS News Corporation, National, staged a fake event. They faked the news. They faked the reality and broadcasted that to all of their audience last Friday on CBS This Morning. 100% absolutely. 100% absolutely they did. I mean, this uh, sort of builds on the conversation we were having last segment with Christian Toto from Hollywood and Toto about the media. Holman Jenkins' observation about the media is even worse. Manufacturing out a whole cloth. Well, we knew they they were coming. We had no clue that we were going to have to, like, do fake patients. Registered nurse, we knew CBS was coming. We didn't know we were going to have to do fake tests. Maria Hernandez Vasquez, professional registration specialist at the site. Gotcha. Did she tell you guys, like, hey, you're not actually getting tested? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, she did. She just, 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 well, I didn't see you guys do the swab at all. I just saw you talking yeah. with them. And then I was talking with you the other girl. Pretended. Pretended. There were a couple of real patients, which made it worse. Theater in the round, COVID-19 testing edition. <laughs> Is that problematic at all? Why? Back to O'Keefe with the insider. The people in the line were, were not people being tested, but they were employees pretending to be patients. Correct. Yep. Why would they do that? Um, I think it's a little bit of a benefit for both parties. Um, I do know Cherry Health is struggling a little bit financially. Um, they're a nonprofit, so they get a lot of their money from donors or um, grants. Um, so it just makes them look productive. And then on the side of the news, um, you know, they want to make the line appear bigger than it is, just just for their reporting purposes to show that you know this is a big deal. Um, that people are getting tested in massive numbers. Yeah, maybe. We, we've talked about the incentives uh, with respect to compensation uh, from the federal government for COVID-19 related patients, fatalities. Also, to make it look like maybe more people are, more tests are being processed than give the appearance that more testing is being done than has been reported. Make this uh, testing sites are overwhelmed. They they aren't getting the resources they need from the Trump administration. When in point of fact, it is particularly at this point, seems fairly clearly established that it's not a capacity issue anymore. It's a, a demand issue. In other words, based on volunteerism, you're not getting the number of people volunteering to be tested that you would otherwise like to continue to ramp up the numbers at a, a pace that the capacity allows to so just manufacture this and represent it as something that was actually happening. People actually getting tested at this facility, people actually testing at this facility. That's fraud. 
plain and simple. Valerie, the insurance verifier. That long line that we have. Yeah. And then the, when I went to go grab the, the bag with the test tube in it, that's when they told me, and I was like, figures, because we see the schedule ahead. Oh, so no one told you, like, in advance? It was just kind of like, you were just like, why is this line so long? <laughs> yeah, hilarious. What about um, something else, too? The, as we were talking about with Christian Toto, the established media narrative that you should be fearful. Government's desire to make you fearful so you will comply. You will not ask questions. You will be silently obedient. There will be winners coming out of this with respect to power, political power and economic power. Are they going to be you or are they going to be so many units of government at every level? Good piece and spiked online by a professor of sociology at the University of Kent named Frank Ferretti. Don't sacrifice freedom at the altar of safety. While governments were delighted that a fearful public was so ready to exchange its freedoms for the promise of safety, they now have a new problem, namely that citizens have become too anxious to leave their homes when the lockdown ends, maybe too anxious to leave their homes to go get a fake test. Such is the widespread fear of COVID-19 that surveys show the majority of the UK population would even like to extend this regime of confinement indefinitely, 57% opposing the relaxation of lockdown rules. We see that uh, throughout certain urban centers and states in this country, including my home state of Illinois. There's um, an understanding that uh, some in positions of power have about uh, the masses, and it comes, whether they know it or not, from longshoreman turned philosopher Eric Hoffer in his uh, excellent treatise, The Theory of Mass Movement. And what Hoffer argued is that for people to rise up, to revolt against an established order, two things have to be present. One, they have to believe they are in charge of their own destiny. And two, they have to believe that they can improve their lives. If you don't believe you're in charge of your own destiny, and thus you don't believe you can chart a course that improves your life, then you're likely to revert to the status quo, whatever is imposed upon you. This is what is happening with so many people across the world, across the Western world, the, the most free portion of the world is people no longer believe they're in charge of their own destiny because you have this invisible enemy. And I am not discounting its reality, but proportionality is lost. I'm not in charge of my own destiny anymore. I cannot improve my life. And I'm afraid things can get worse, which is what the mentality breeds. So I'm going to accept the new status quo. I'm going to accept the established order. That's what's happening. And by the way, it's happening among our best and brightest too, young people despite what we know about the virus. For example, in Campus View, uh, the Future View is actually the, the segment that the Wall Street Journal runs. Uh, they uh, interview uh, college students about a range of topics. So the topic, the most recent topic, should colleges reopen this fall? Kate and Wheeler, Harvard University. At first thought, yes, I would like the school to reopen this fall. I chose to study at Harvard, not only to learn in an immense and diverse environment, but also to meet intelligent peers. But unless there's a vaccine, campus life would be different on second thought. I might prefer to stay home. Despite what we know about the incidence of the virus and the lethality of it among people under the age of 50, much less under the age of 25, Ian Kreitzberg, College of New Jersey Journalism. Well, you know where this is going. There probably isn't a single college student who wants another semester online, but if no vaccine or treatment has emerged by the fall, that's precisely what we should get. Renee Yesen, University of Notre Dame. If no vaccine is available by September, do I think my school should reopen in the fall? Out of an abundance of caution, I don't think it should. An abundance of caution. We talked about that last, that phrase. Another one of these 
phrases, these cliches emanating from this outbreak. We talked about uh, last night's show with Charles Kessler from the Claremont Institute. On an abundance of caution, I'm going to surrender myself to the state. No way to live. Can't accept that as the new normal. But the statists know what they're doing, don't they? And so does the state sympathetic, if not run, media. This is Dan Proff. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. And uh, John Keeger gets the line of the day, the award for line of the day. Politically, they use statistics like the drunkard uses lampposts for support rather than for illumination. Uh, suggesting that uh, that's happening in every which direction. You have a particular point of view on what a lockdown should or shouldn't look like, uh, what a government's approach to the COVID-19 outbreak should or shouldn't be, and you cherry-pick statistics that support that contention, that position, while ignoring statistics that do not. We try to do the opposite here. We try to kind of understand what's happening and uh, take uh, all of the... Uh, data that is being called, all of the studies that are being prom- uh, promulgated, all of the models that are being assessed, and see what makes the most sense. For more on the topic, since he is the uh, quote of the day award winner, we're pleased to be joined by John Keegers, professor of French history, former research director of the Department of Politics and International Studies at the University of Cambridge, who joins us now. John, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. So you you it was uh, it's a good piece that you put together for uh, Spectator dot US about uh, uh, you know essentially to borrow from Mark Twain lies damn lies and statistics and that's a lot of what we're seeing isn't it? Oh, it certainly is. I think uh, as you explained very well in your introduction, there's an awful lot of cherry picking going on about well depending on which which political stance you want to promote, then you choose your statistics, and so in many ways. Uh, the um, statistics has become the continuation of politics by other means. And and the result is that um, I'm afraid that the public suffers most. Well, it, it's it's interesting because um, uh, one of the things you see is that uh, some of the uh, the people uh, per, perpetu- uh, perpetuating a particular view uh, don't believe it themselves, it would appear. And I point to... Uh, Neil Ferguson, the uh, famed uh, modeler from Imperial College London, recently uh, resigned as an advisor to the British government after it was discovered that uh, he had been having secret liaisons with uh, a a romantic partner of his while the city was on lockdown. So he's the guy who came up with the model predicting, you know, virtual end times uh, and yet uh, didn't isn't wasn't concerned enough about his own model to not uh, violate the orders that uh, his model uh, led to. Yes, and well, it's remarkable hypocrisy on the part of uh, on the part of Ferguson. But I suppose he's got his just desserts in that. Um, uh, well, I think it discredits uh, perhaps um, his position as an individual as a. As a an independent scientific observer, and also discredits him as um, uh, as an individual. In that, um, 
I suppose that his colleagues might now believe that he acts hypocritically in other circumstances as well. But, you know, that's not for not for me to judge, apart from on the scientific evidence that um, that he promotes occasionally. Well, and, and here's the thing about that. And maybe uh, he got away with it this long because it never resulted in the sort of economic uh, response that uh, COVID-19 has generated the world over. I mean, Neil Ferguson is not an unknown quantity. Uh, he had put out uh, models that had predictions for dating back two decades from mad cow disease to avian flu to swine flu. And all of those predictions were wildly, I mean, hundreds of dead versus his prediction of hundreds of millions dead off. And yet still Britain was pursuing one approach prior to his model Imperial College uh, at Imperial College London uh, being published uh, versus the approach that they ultimately moved to when his dire predictions came out. Yes, well, I, I must say I don't fully understand why the the UK government has chosen to, to go with Imperial College and the way that they've stuck with uh, Imperial so steadfastly. There are, of course, other models. As, as we all know, there is one uh, from Oxford University in the UK which um, gives totally different predictions to the ones that... Uh, that um, that you know, Neil Ferguson has been coming out with, they suggest that um, that lockdowns are not the solution and that um, we could have had uh, better results if no lockdown had taken place. And as we probably know now, the, um, the Swedish statistics, where there was no uh, lockdown at all, uh, have been extremely good. And, um, and they've continued with their, their normal lives pretty much. And uh, their, their figures are no worse than anywhere else, indeed uh, decidedly better than the United Kingdom anyway. Uh, when we come back with uh, Professor John Keeger, Professor of French History, former research director of the Department of Politics and International Studies at the University of Cambridge, I want to uh, also talk about what we don't know, uh, the extrapolations that are being made, not just from, from uh, the comparative statistics of the moment. Uh, more with the professor right after this. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're talking to Professor John Keeger, Professor of French History, former research director of the Department of Politics and International Studies at the University of Cambridge. Professor, you were just mentioning before the break about uh, the statistics coming out of Sweden and comparing those to other Western European countries, as many have been doing because of Sweden's decision not to impose a lockdown a, uh, uh, in the country writ large in terms of treating everybody the same, not to require masks be worn in public. In fact, to, to some extent, to discourage them, they've pursued a herd immunity strategy from the beginning. One of the things, you know, I, I don't know how it's going to turn out. There are models for it to, to compare Italy to Spain, to the UK, to France, to Sweden. But um, I always give a little bit more benefit of the doubt to people who don't know either. It, the experts who, who recognize there are limits to what we know and there are questions that have yet to be answered. And so I keep coming back to this former uh, state epidemiologist for Sweden, Johan Gisecki, who said in terms of conversation about Sweden's approach versus the approach of countries that pursued the categorical lockdown. 
you know, come back to me in a year and we'll see. You know, we, we think this makes sense. There's a particular culture in Sweden of trust. We have some experience with this. We are going to follow what we know about uh, immunology and viral outbreaks, even if there's criticism from certain political quarters that rooted in fear. This is the approach we're going to take. And you come back to me in a year and I will bet you, said Gisecki, that uh, Sweden will have done just as well, if not better than uh, its uh, Western European counterparts. You know, so it's not so much the it's not so much braggadocia. It's an explanation of the rationale behind the approach they took, even as they're enduring criticism from pro lockdown interests in the Western world. Well, I'd agree with what you've said. I think they've been the Swedes have been extremely courageous in wishing to continue to do that and not submitting to the enormous pressure that uh, is exercised either through the European Union or through just from other countries abroad that are very much in favor of lockdown. Indeed, there's a kind of chauvinism that has developed around particular ways of dealing with things. And um, I think that uh, the sort of hard states, I mean, I'm in France, I'm phoning you from France. In France, the, the lockdown has been extremely severe. I'm not allowed to go out of the of the house without signing a piece of paper and ticking each of the boxes to say that I will be doing certain things when I go out for no more than an hour. It's amazing. France is supposed to be the country of uh, human rights and uh, the citizens' rights and everything like that. And yet the way the, the lockdown is exercised and the repressive powers that are used, I mean, it's really quite remarkable. For instance, the French police in the first three weeks had carried out 12 million checks on their citizens and imposed nearly half a million fines. And yet they have this rather cheek, it seems to me, to say in public fora that um, certain countries are behaving in an authoritarian way. It is a form of uh, sort of national hypocrisy that uh, really uh, should be a, a sort of source of embarrassment. Well, and, and again, and since you raised France, I mean, it's, and, and, and I raised the issue of things we don't know or things that we're, we're surprised to, to learn that may be true. For example, this study that was done uh, in uh, Wausau in, in France that uh, looked not only at the uh, percentage of the population that was asymptomatic but had been infected through antibody testing, uh, but also the curious case you would think that's very counterintuitive that uh, the smokers fared better than non-smokers in terms of infection rates. And you would think, uh, boy, uh, somebody smoking, that is a a bad uh, habit, that is an unhealthy habit. You're weakening your immune system, so you're more likely to be infected and have that be severe. But that's not the uh, findings of this particular study. And this is not advocacy for smoking, but it's just, it's just, it's a recognition of things we just don't understand very much. Like at the beginning does our, our younger people just as uh, uh, just as, as vulnerable as older people. And the indication was it it's not like the flu where younger people uh, have this similar danger to older people. And we weren't sure, but the, as the weeks have gone on, we're becoming more certain that it is very much the case as younger people uh, die from the flu at a rate two or three times those over 60 uh, uh, d- d- die with respect to COVID-19. So just, you know, the things that we don't know, but 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 you have politicians and certain pundits speaking which, with such certainty. Well, yes, I, I agree with that. The the. Um... 
the, the question of the, the smoking, that uh, immediately created an enormous political storm here in France because, uh, well, for all the reasons that one can imagine, the, the anti-smoking lobby went completely mad and said that uh, we shouldn't even be publishing these kind of statistics. You know, it's sort of a denial of the truth and, and a denial of, of wishing to bring scientific evidence out into the open, which... Um, strikes me as extremely worrying and uh, the kind of uh, thing that happens in, in far more authoritarian states. But, um, uh, yes, I mean, the important thing is that, that scientists get a chance to say things without this terrible pressure which is put on them at the moment uh, to, to speak in a particular kind of uh, groupthink way. And uh, that's what... Um, I think, needs shaking. And uh, it sounds like programs that you you seem to organize are uh, going in that direction. That's to say they are shaking things up and allowing people of different uh, political persuasions or different scientific persuasions to have their say and to speak frankly and uh, not fear the, the consequences. Well, part of it is a fear of the consequences of what you're describing, which is uh, that... Um, cognitive dissonance will be shut down, that there's an accepted storyline that everybody must hew regardless of the evidence to support it. The the, the people that are, are uh, saying they're acting in furtherance of what the science says when they're shutting down uh, scientific processes. I mean, the, the, the uh, oxymoronic nature of that and the dangerous direction of that. Yes, well, I, I certainly certainly agree with, with you there. Um, yeah, the, uh, the, sm- the smoking thing, there is a, a clear explanation. I think it's something to do with uh, how nicotine affects the receptors uh, in, the, um, in the brain and elsewhere uh, or in the, uh, in the lungs that uh, allows it to, to block the uh, coronavirus um, attaching itself is what I understood. But at least I learned something as a result of that. But there was an immediate shutdown on that, really, in public. And... Uh, very disappointing it was. And very telling. He is Professor John Keeger, Professor of French History, former Research Director of the Department of Politics and International Studies at the University of Cambridge. Professor, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, uh, who we were in the West versus who we've become. This is a nice illustration of it. The temporary rules uh, from uh, 1940 at the Richmond Golf Club in England. <laughs> this is something. This is uh, you know, World War II, Luftwaffe bombs falling on this course. Temporary rules, 1940, Richmond Golf Club which um, still is operation today. Of course it is, after you hear these rules. Players are asked to collect bomb and shrapnel splinters to save their uh, to uh, save these, causing damage to the mowing machines. Sure, protect the fairways at all costs. In competitions, during gunfire or while bombs are falling, players may take cover without penalty for ceasing play. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm sure that was a controversy that arose where 
it was match play, and uh, yeah, you can't stop playing. That's that's a two-stroke penalty for slow play. I'm sorry. The positions of known delayed action bombs are marked by red flags at a reasonably but not guaranteed safe distance therefrom. Uh, talk about a hazard on the course. Shrapnel and or bomb splinters on the fairways or in bunkers within a club's length of the ball may be moved without penalty, and no penalty shall be incurred if a ball is thereby caused to move accidentally. Right. That's very, you know, sure, reasonable. A ball moved by enemy action may be replaced or if lost or destroyed, a ball may be dropped not near the hole without penalty. Hey, you Nazi, put my ball down. That not that Nazi took my ball. All right, well, you may replace it no closer to the hole without penalty. A ball lying in a crater may be lifted and dropped out no nearer the hole, preserving the line to the hole without penalty. I mean, wow. During the bombings of World War II, a golf marshaled on, a golfers marshaled on. Today, today, twosomes in the state of Illinois, just to give you an example, after golf was actually reopened, limited to twosomes, makes no sense, right? Because four guys can't uh, be six feet apart on a 7,500-yard course. Uh, of course not. And, uh, you know... No scorecards and no cards because the virus can live on surface. Oh, boy, what a difference a couple of generations makes, huh? I wanted to uh, close the show by reminding you of uh, this uh, wonderful film series, Patterns of Evidence, the Exodus, which is a documentary presenting convincing evidence the biblical account of the Exodus is true. The work product of investigative filmmaker Tim Mahoney, who journeyed to Egypt, Israel, throughout the world, to search for answers to the very important question, did the stories like Exodus as written in the Bible really happen? Right now, you can watch Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus at Home, along with the other movies in the series at PatternsofEvidence.com. The other movies, there's three of them, Exodus, The Moses Controversy, The Red Sea Miracle. Watch them all at Patterns of Evidence. Uh, Patterns of Evidence is the name of the series. PatternsofEvidence.com is where you go to watch them. PatternsofEvidence.com. Thank you for joining us. For another installment of the Dan Prof Show, please do so again tomorrow. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news.